and welcome to the Literati Cast. I'm Jennifer Loughran, and I'm a senior agent at the Andrea Brown Literary Agency. I'm here as always to talk about the world of kid lit publishing with experts in the field. Today, I am so excited to bring you one of my favorite friends and colleagues. Molly Carhan is an agent at the Bent Agency. She's an American based in London, and she sells mostly YA and middle grade books, both to the US and the UK market. Her list includes such awesome authors as Heidi Heilig, author of The Girl from Everywhere, Alwyn Hamilton, author of Rebel of the Sands, Bonnie Sue Hitchcock, author of The Smell of Other People's Houses, which was a Morris Award finalist last year, um, Stephanie Burgess, author of The Dragon with a Chocolate Heart, and one of my favorite authors of all time, Hilary Mackay, who is the author of Safi's Angel, among many other literal classics. When I found out the Molly Raptor, I cried because I love her so much. And, you know, that's my problem. But, um, but I ultimately what I'm saying is Molly has amazing taste. So um, let's see if we can get Molly on the line. Hi, Molly. Hi, Jen. I know who you are, but for our listeners who might not, can you tell me what is your background? How did you come to agenting? What's your official title? What's your favorite stuff about being an agent? Tell me everything. Go. Great. Okay. How long do you have? Um, well, I am an agent with the Bent Agency. I am the director of our UK office, which is based in London. And I have been an agent for, is it still 2018? For just over six years. But I came to this role from a variety of other roles in children's publishing. My very first job out of college was as an editorial assistant at Chronicle Books in San Francisco uh, when it was still pretty small, which was amazing because in a small publisher, if you're the assistant, you have to do everything. You have to be involved in every single part of the process. Uh, so it was just, it was like boot camp. It was, it was extraordinary experience. And from there I worked for another publisher and then I took a detour from children's publishing for a couple of years um, and came back to work for the Children's Book Council, which is the Trade Association of American Children's Book Publishers, which was amazing because I got to work with people from almost every children's publisher you can imagine. And by people, I mean everyone from the publisher down to the brand new assistants. So I got to know people everywhere. And this turned out to be, spoiler alert, very useful later on. Uh, when I, when I, so I moved to London after I had my first baby and, and my husband got transferred. And I took a few years off of work. And I came to agenting because Jenny Bent, the founder of the Bent Agency. Uh, she and I have been friends for more years than we care to admit. And she kind of, I would say she talked me into it, but she kind of bullied me into joining the agency and said, I, I, I really want you to come and do children's books with me and you can do it from London. It'll be, it's, it's easy. Uh, what she should have said is that it's fun because it really is easy, not necessarily. Um, mm -hmm. So I came back to publishing after a number of years away and my time at the Children's Book Council turned out to be invaluable because when I picked up the phone and started calling editors, I already knew them, which I think is an incredible advantage to someone starting out as an agent. I still had a ton to learn, but at least I had a network in place already. So that's how I, yeah, came, yeah that's how I came to be an I, agent. I honestly can't believe you've only been an agent for six years because you've had some extraordinary successes. Oh, and I feel like flutter. you must 
I am, but it's true. Bring it on. Okay, tell me more. <laughs> Actually, I have to tell listeners this, which is, here's the thing about Molly that you might not know, Uh-oh. is that her superpower is <laughs> knowing literally everyone. It is Like, true. if you walk down the street with Molly, she will see straight to you, strangers, to her classmates friends of the family <laughs> like the doorman she has had christmas dinner with <laughs> well i do i i often joke with my family that if you know when you're sitting around the dinner table thinking about what your superhero name would be mine is the human rolodex um, <laughs> because true. i have a really good memory for people um, and honestly i wish i didn't remember everybody i'd ever met because then i could remember things like what night we have to put the rubbish out um, which is something i always forget um but I also, I'm an extrovert. I like people. I like talking to people. And and that's one of the reasons I love my job because so much of agenting is talking to people. It's finding out what makes authors tick. It's key. It's, you know, basically every time I see an editor, it's like I'm interviewing them for, you know, my spy dossier. I need to know everything about them <laughs> because every little bit of information, I know you know this, Jen, comes in handy when you're making a submission list. If someone, oh, for sure. All right. If someone tells me that they spent their junior year abroad in Tanzania, I file that away because one day I'm going to have a, a project that was set in Tanzania and I'm sending it to that editor and they're going to buy it. Right. So, so yeah, I do. Um, it, it, it is fortunate that I do have a good memory for people because when I came back to publishing and I started calling, you know, people that I had known even tangentially when I was working in New York, um, you know, I, those relationships were, the foundation had already been laid for them a long time ago. So that was an enormous boon to my new career or newish career as an agent. So let's get this out of the way. You were closed to queries for a while. Yeah. And I know that last week you just reopened to queries. Yes. So, so I'm lying on the floor as we have this because I have been <laughs> deluged with submissions. That's good. Yes, but uh, I know that a lot of listeners only want to hear what are you looking for? Oh. So what's your wish list? Oh, it's so easy. I just want something fantastic. Uh, right? That's a, that, that's, yeah. all, that's all people need to know, surely. No pressure no, at all. No, no pressure. Um, okay, so my list uh, has a couple things, I think, that uh, describe all the books on it. My, my list tends to lean toward the literary end of the market. Um, what, and by that, we mean upmarket. We mean... Um, books that are likelier to win awards, maybe. Um, I am a sucker for really, really good, sophisticated, well-crafted writing. That doesn't mean the subjects have to be serious. That doesn't mean I only do boring books. I mean, I don't, I don't think I do any boring books, but I mean, I guess someone could argue with me on that. Um, but I, I tend to look for really high quality writing. So that is something that I think all of my books share. Um, I would not be the person to come to for a super um, accessible middle grade series that's going to have 30 volumes in it. You know what I mean? That's just not, that's not the kind of stuff that I gravitate toward. Um, and I think, what else am I looking for? I like stories that I haven't heard because I feel like we see some stories told again and again in children's books and sometimes to great effect, but I, you know, I, I'm getting old. I've seen those stories so many times. I want to see something that feels new to me, which can be tricky because I have read a lot and I've been reading for a long time. 
Um, I look for things that have a really strong sense of place. I've talked about this before. Um, but as a kid, when I was reading books, and I think a lot of people who were big readers as kids would say the same, I really relied on books to take me out of where I was. I was not in a bad place, but I was in what I felt was a boring place. I was not a kid who grew up traveling a lot. I didn't have siblings. I spent a lot of time on my own and books were where I escaped. But if I was going to escape, I wanted to go somewhere new. I wanted to go mm. to, well, you and I were just talking about Noel Straitfeld and the ballet shoes and dancing shoes books. I wanted to go to London in the 1930s. I wanted to go to um, Prydain, Lloyd Alexander's uh version of, of, of medieval whales, actually, or even older than that, old, old whales. I wanted to go new places. And I still do in the books that I rep. I'm looking at my shelves now and I have books that are set in Alaska, um, a planet where everyone has synesthesia, uh, a book that is set on a time traveling ship. It's not quite a pirate ship, but uh, a time traveling ship. I have books that are set in a fantasy version of the Middle East in Tokyo, I have a book coming out in a couple of months that is set all over Europe, a group of teenagers um, interrailing all over Europe, books set in Scotland. I'd like to go new places. So take me someplace that I am unlikely to go to this week. That's, <laughs> that's, that's what I'd like, which means, you know, which, which does mean, unfortunately, I have seen a lot of books um, that are set in London, which I'm a really um, mean judge of because I live here. And if you haven't lived here and you're writing about London, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm, I might not be the best audience for it, but also it's, it's not unfamiliar to me yeah. and I want to go someplace new. Do you have any pet peeves about queries? I mean, I think every agent has seen the ones that say, this book is going to make you a million dollars and you're a fool if you don't take me on. I'm like, well, more fool me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, Really what I'm interested in in the query is the book. I don't mind a line or two about who the author is and, and what makes them the right person to write this story. Um, but it's the, it's the project, it's, it's the queries that are 80% life story and 20% here's my book that, that I struggle with. Because um, mm -hmm. you could have the world's most interesting life story, but the book has to stand on its own. And the job of the query letter is to entice me to read the book. I mean, I, I look at all the queries. I read as much of the sample as I feel that I need to. But what I want is a query letter that makes me go, oh my God, I have to read this. I have to drop everything and read this. And I have had queries like that. I think about Heidi Heilig's query for the girl from everywhere, which, um, which I talk about a lot actually. And it even appeared on um, Query Shark, you know, the website. Mm -hmm. uh, and Query Shark, Janet, read the query and was like, this is great. If I did YA, I would totally request this. It was one of the few query shark um, submissions that, uh, that Janet didn't find anything to, to, to criticize about. Um, Cause she's a, she's a tough audience, a really good uh, dissector of queries. And I think mm -hmm. about um, Alwyn Hamilton's query for what became rebel of the Sam. She immediately cited some of my favorite books and whether or not she'd pick those up from social media, or she just happened to cite books that I absolutely loved. I don't know, but that made me really want to read the book. So mm. That's what I want. I want something that makes me feel like I have to drop everything, this French tax form, this endless contract to read this book. That's what I want.
That's me too, yeah. by the way. Um, so you sell both into US and UK. I do. Uh, can we talk about the differences between those two markets a little bit? Oh, uh, we can. It's going to take a long time though. So let's just do the highlights because there's a lot, there are so many more differences than I think most people realize. Um, the first thing, obviously, it's a much smaller market here, fewer editors. You know, I think you and I, when we're prepping submissions for the US, we think, okay, HarperCollins, which of the 800 editors at HarperCollins will I send this book to? And, you know, I'm exaggerating for effect, but literally, if you have a YA novel that's going to HarperCollins, I mean, how many, how many, 30? How, how many? Oh, yeah. So 30. many. You really have to think about who you're going to send it to. And if you go to a big house over here, there's maybe five at the most. So it becomes a little less important about who you send each proposal to and a lot more important to understand that house's list and how much room they have and what they've bought recently because they publish fewer books. And the other thing that I think Americans in particular, well, actually, I think it goes both ways. There is no library market in the UK. Mm -hmm. All the big five publishers and most of the medium-sized ones in the States have dedicated school and library marketing staff, right? Well, you get 22,000 people at the ALA annual conference, roughly, and you get a couple hundred at the UK equivalent. Primary school, elementary school librarians are very rare here. It's not, um, it's not a profession that is as supported either financially or culturally as it is in America. And I have a lot of theories about that. But what I really want is for some library student somewhere doing their, um, their MLS or their... Um, doctorate in library science to do their whole dissertation on the differences in um, how library. Yeah. Cause I, cause otherwise I'm going to have to do it and I don't have time, but it's such, <laughs> it's such a different idea here. So when we, you know, we, there are books, there are publishers who focus on the library market fiction for the library market. And there are books that, you know, you can sell in the U S because it will do really well in libraries and that will be enough for a big publisher to take it on. Mm-hmm. And that does not happen in the UK. It, 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 it not at all. A book has to work in the trade market, um, in, in the, in the retail market, or it's not going to work at all. So those are the two really, really big differences. Those are big differences. <laughs> um, I've heard sometimes from editors or foreign rights agents or whatnot, that sometimes a manuscript is, uh, too American. They say mm. do you, that seems like code to me. Do you have a handle on what that means? Yeah, sometimes. Um, I think when you're writing contemporary realistic fiction, uh, British kids have a pretty decent cultural handle on American high school. Cheerleaders, American football, you know, those things don't really happen in British schools, but British kids are aware of them. I mean, you can't not be because of American television. Our television here is full of American shows, movies, all that stuff. Um, but there is there there are some stories that feel very specific and micro, and because and, and if there's nothing, if there's if there's if the story is extremely realistic, sometimes sometimes it's a story that would be better told in the context of a British teenager's experience or a British child's experience. Um, if you're talking about a book that is set entirely around the yearbook staff. Well, the schools here don't really do yearbooks the way the Americans do. I mean, they do they do yearbooks, but they, it's not it's not the same thing. Or a school newspaper. I think about my own high school experience where we had this incredible award winning 
newspaper and journalism class was super serious. And that just, it's just not the same thing over here. And, and kids can't even really relate to the idea that you could be taking journalism as a class in high school because it just doesn't exist over here. Um, so I, I think it really does make a difference if you're writing realistic contemporary fiction. Um, and there are books that are considered too American, but sometimes it's just a gut feeling. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that I can, that was a long way of saying, I don't know that I can give you a very strict <laughs> definition for that question. I think that works. Okay. That works. I understand. Well, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's the same reason that like there are books that are too British. Here's a book oh, that's yeah. all about um, uh, five kids sitting their A-levels and it's set over the course of a month and it's all about A-levels. And most American kids would go, what now? <laughs> because they, they don't well we could change it to sat and make it a day yeah, but i guess but it, that would be different but it's totally different because i mean a levels you spend two years doing only three or four subjects that's it for two years and you have exams at the end of those two years that are on everything you've just studied so it's it actually is nothing like the sat because i don't know about you but in my day i just rocked up to the sat with a couple of pencils and my driver's license and sat down and took it. I did no preparation. Um, and, and that's not, you, you would never, you wouldn't even be allowed to sit your A-levels if you hadn't shown up to class. I mean, it just wouldn't happen. I did, I did what might be considered the opposite of preparation. Yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, that's, that's sort of what I did too. It's like, I don't want to know anything about it. I want to be pleasantly surprised when I walk. <laughs> uh, but it was a different right. time. <laughs> Different time, different time. Um, so now it's advice column time. Mm-hmm. Will you help me answer some listener questions? I will. Okay, good. So I have a bunch of questions. Some of these were gleaned from the Tumblr. Some of them I got an email and some were Patreon questions. And I gave you a sneak preview of them, but there's a couple maybe that are in here that I didn't didn't tell you about in advance. So. <sighs> Okay. <clears throat> okay. A lot of times people say you should look at newer agents because, you know, people that are senior agents might not be already open. have full lists. Yeah. Right. Might not be open as we were both closed recently. So a listener asks, when considering newer agents to query, what should others be looking for? It is such a good question um, because – there are newer agents and newer agents. <laughs> and the first thing I think that I would say is, where is this newer agent working? Are they working for an established agency? Uh, are they working for in a place where the people around them have experience and know what they're doing? Uh, because if they, I mean, because I was not so long ago, a newer agent. And the fact that I was working with Jenny Bent was like a calling card for me. It meant that I wasn't making stuff up as I went along. It meant that if I had a question, I had someone who'd been in the business for 20 years who who I could ask. Um, so I think it's really important to know who your newer agent is working with. If they're, they've hung out their shingle because they like to read, I think that's a red flag. Um, I would want to know how they negotiate their contracts because if they're newer, they might not have much contract experience. So who does that negotiation for them or with them? Do they have a contracts manager at their agency? Do they, um, or are they making it up? Which is, uh, I hope not. Um, Mm -hmm. And you also want to look at, I think other experience that the agent has, because for me, I was a newer agent, but I also had a lot of experience in the industry. I, I knew 
how publishing worked. And I, I think people come to agenting from different places, right? Well, I th- I feel like there's three things that an agent needs. Three. Or, or th- well, three things, and you could pick two of them. Mm-hmm. You need to have a lot of connections. Right. You need to um, have a lot of experience. Yep. And if you don't have connections or experience, you need to have very strong mentors. Yeah. If you have a strong enough mentor, you could get away with not having a ton of connections or experience. Yeah. But you but then you gain them quite quickly. Right. Because the thing with connections is like when I started over here, I didn't know anyone working in the UK. I went through back issues of the bookseller, which is like Publishers Weekly, but here in the UK. And I uh I pulled out names. Oh, here is a name of an editor at Bloomsbury. And I Googled and cold called. You know, I felt like I was selling fuller brushes. Just, you know, <laughs> hi, my name is Molly. I'm calling from the Bend Agency. Can I take you to coffee and hear about your list? So those connections can be made with hard work and it doesn't necessarily have to take that long. Someone can compensate for that if they, you know, and if they don't have experience, you just, you need to know that someone is going to be there to mentor them. And my first year, I was, I mean, Jenny, God bless her. She never once said, will you please stop texting me? But I was constantly (laughs) on the phone to Jenny saying, you know, the client says this, what would you do? Constantly. And, you know, most of the time she would say, well, what do you think you should do? And I would say, I thought, and she would say, great, do that because that's right. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's, it, it can be really nerve wracking for newer agents who have most of them, if they, you know, if, if they're showing signs of good taste, they have offered representation to people who've turned them down. And when you're a newer agent, it can happen all the time because, you know, if you're up against a, a very well-known established agent in a beauty contest, as we call them, um, you know, it, it can be hard to beat someone who's a big name. So, I mean, you know, and it, it's nerve wracking and it, it can make, uh, you know, I think it helps them understand the author's point of view because you know, the author's dealing with the potential of, of rejection too. So on a similar kind of vein, how do you feel about freelance editors? Because a listener says mm. they hired a very well-regarded editor mm. and she changed their manuscript all around and turned it into a very expensive mistake. Oh. Um, so they ask, what are some good questions to ask before hiring one? Oh, do you know, I think I have to um, uh, recuse myself from this one. I've never worked with a freelance editor. I come, you know, I, I have worked on the editorial side in publishing so I've never, I mean, I, I feel like my editorial skills are as as strong as they need to be in the role that I'm in right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not an editor. I don't want to be an editor. It's too many meetings. My God. Um, <laughs> but I, so I honestly don't know. Well, I would say also, because he asked me, uh, he asked me to ask you, I also don't know <laughs> because I also have never worked with a freelance editor. That being said, just generally speaking, I would say... Um, your manuscript is your manuscript. Absolutely. So it's if your any line. editor, if any editor is changing things around or doing something that you don't feel good about, you don't have to do it. Nope. You don't have to say yes. So, um, so I would just make sure that you're on the same page with them to begin with. And then remember that it's supposed to be an interactive and iterative process. Absolutely. And at the end of the day, it, it's your name on the book. And this is true, whether it's a freelance editor or the editor who bought your book. Oh yeah. They're not there to give you instruction necessarily. They're there to help you make it be the best book it can. And I have been in situations where the client and the editor 
turn out to have very different ideas of exactly what that best book is. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm here to advocate for my client. I'm not here to make the publisher's argument for them. Yeah. And sometimes that means, rarely, but sometimes that does mean saying, do you know what, I think, I think we are going to fail to reach agreement here. The other thing is, I feel like when you're looking at it, looking at an edit, looking at a, a question that an editor has or something, a lot of times they just they just have trouble with this patch, but their suggestion may not be the way to fix it. Right. Maybe you can figure out some other way to address well, that problem. Isn't there that great um, Neil Gaiman quote that I always completely butcher? But it's something that he said once about how, you know, if... 10 people tell you there's something wrong with your manuscript. They're probably right. Um, but if 10 people tell you how to fix it, they're probably wrong. Mm, that's a good one. Well, I'm sure that's it was not probably exactly better when Neil. Yeah, it was Gaiman definitely said. better when Neil gave me. You know, like I said, <laughs> I'm not a writer. Writing is way too much like hard work. I would far rather <laughs> argue all day. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's really true. And I, I actually have a client um, named Martin Stewart who wrote, his first book was called Riverkeep, and his second book comes out tomorrow in the UK, um, and it'll be out in a couple of months in the US. And he um, he is he's he's a magic self editor, or 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 he's magic at being edited because he will he makes a chart uh, of every point that his editor has made, and in that chart he you know summarizes the point, and and then in the next column he addresses how he's going to fix it, and in doing so, he also addresses the points that he doesn't think need to be fixed the way the editor does. And I I love watching his thought process because he's very good at saying, oh, I see what you're saying here. This is not working. I also see what what you're suggesting for how I fix that. And here's why I don't think that's going to work. Here's what I think will work. I mean, it takes him a while because you know he has to mull this stuff over as every writer does with their edits. But I think it's so important to recognize that an editor's solution to an issue they see might not be the right one because it's your book and you're probably the only person who can come up with the right one. I'm planning my books across different genres, historical fiction, political satire, and so on. How do I look for an agent? A, should I look for an agent who broadly represents commercial fiction so that most of what I write will be covered? B, do I write with different agents for different books? Or C, do I request my agent consider the genres that he or she may not be representing? Oh, okay. Well, first of all, A, I think is probably your best bet. B is terrible. It's not terrible, but B would be unusual and less desirable. Um, What you really want is one agent to rep as much of your work as humanly possible. And I'm not saying that you should have the same agent for your books as you do your screenplays, because that doesn't often happen. But I think you want one agent who represents everything, that, all, all the books that you want to write. And that, that's actually not so hard to find. I mean, there, there are many agents who rep anything from a picture book to um, a, a 900-page biography of someone... I can't think of a name. <laughs> and I know well, a biography of, of someone really important and dead. Um, I don't know. But I don't know. I mean, I do think, I mean, as you know, you mostly do kids and YA books. Yeah, but. but I think that when you, can yeah, you can do things that are outside of that. But if somebody wanted to do a bunch of craft books all of a sudden or something, you might 
not be the best mm-hmm. agent for that. There are agents who might be better at yeah, that. Yeah, well, there, there, that is true. But um, I will argue that uh, I don't think it's impossible or even all that difficult for an agent to branch into a new category. You know, whether or not you want to be the subject of that experiment is up to you. But if one of my clients came to me and said, I want to do a craft book, I know what I'd do. I'd immediately go to Publishers Marketplace, see who is rep- who, who sells craft or who buys craft books. Um, and I would think about, I would ask my colleagues, has anyone ever done a craft book proposal just so I can get a sense of what they look like? I mean, I would probably figure it out because I have done that for my clients when they want to want me to rep a book that is not in my sweet spot. I figure it out because my relationship with them is really important. Now, if it's, if it is like literally a 900 page biography of Abraham Lincoln written for, you know, adults, I'm... I might say this is really, this is something that you might want to speak to either one of my colleagues or another agent about. But if you're, if you intend off the bat, like right from the start to write a really wide range of stuff, I would look for an agent who's going to rep as much of that as possible. Yeah. Or at least is that an agency that, that does so. Them so they can have absolutely more. I mean, I think of it like this. If one of my clients, because my agency and myself specializes in kids in YA. Right. So, um, if one of my clients wanted to write a one-off or romance or something like that, I certainly could represent it. Mm-hmm. But if they decided they wanted to make an entire career shift. Right. But that's different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but, anyway. but, but that's not what this question was. I mean, I completely agree. If, okay. one of, if one of my clients comes to me and says from now on, I am only writing Tom Clancy-esque uh, Cold War thrillers about submarines, then I would say, could, that sounds great. Um, let me know you when you when you query new agents. Please tell them to call me if they want a reference for how wonderful you are to work with. Uh, but I am not your girl for Cold War submarine thrillers. Now it is time for blatant self promotion corner. <laughs> <laughs> what books of your clients should we be looking out for? Very recently released or soon forthcoming? Very recently released. Uh, well, last month. Um, my client, Stephanie Kate Strom, released her newest romantic comedy, which is called Prince in Disguise. And she is clearly psychic because if you were to write a romantic comedy about an American girl falling in love with a British aristocrat, I cannot think of a better time to release it than right now, <laughs> uh, which is hilarious because we sold it a while ago. It's super fun. Uh, it's got great reviews. The bloggers love it. And it's perfect for these cold winter days because it is set at Christmas time in Scotland. And um, and Stephanie, incidentally, because I am such a mean judge of Americans writing things that are set in the UK. My God, she totally nailed it. And I even had a um, a posh British friend uh, educated at Britain's finest schools and universities take a look at some of the dialogue just to make sure that it was um, authentic. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Sensitivity reader, but from the marginalized upper class white male <laughs> Corey, giving them a shot. Um, So super excited about that that came out last month. Um, I have to read that immediately. You will love it. I cannot believe you haven't read it already. You, I can't believe I've never heard of it. How did I not know this? Have you been living under a harrow for the last two months? I'm very very busy. Yes, Yes, I'm really sorry about that. Um, (laughs) And then on the first of February, I have Alwyn Hamilton's uh, concluding book in the trilogy that began with Rebel of the Sands. It's called Hero at the Fall. Um, Alwyn's fans are rabid about her work and they will not be disappointed. 
I think it's terrific. I think it's one of the best trilogy enders I've ever read. Um, I'm super, super, super excited about that. And then I have a debut in March called Orphan Monster Spy by Oh, I read this. Oh, you read it? Yeah. Oh. It's amazing. Oh, I'm so glad you like it. I love it. It's amazing. Oh, my gosh. We worked really hard on that because he is a meticulous writer, and it was so important for him to get this character right. And uh, it was a an auction, a big auction in the U.S. with a lot of players. Um, and I'm not above telling you that some of them cried when they did not the book. <laughs> um, and it was a big auction over here too. I, I, it's a, I call it my Nazi boarding school thriller. Um, and the editor Kendra Levin, who I think you've had on the podcast before, right? We did, and in fact, she talked about this book a tiny bit. Yeah, I think her pitch is my favorite. It's Mean Girls meets inglorious bastards right yeah on that crowded mean girls versus in, or that meets inglorious bastards shelf um I'm, just, I'm really really excited about that i think he's an incredible writer with a very interesting career ahead of him um i have over in the uk an absolutely adorable older middle grade younger ya romantic comedy uh featuring a boy who um falls in love with another boy at Britain's crappiest caravan park. Uh, it has not sold to, to the, in the U S because it is there. There's a question of a book being really British, too British. Too British because <laughs> I don't think Americans necessarily understand the crappiness of Britain's crappiest caravan park. The idea of going, <laughs> going to a trailer park for a vacation is unfamiliar to most American readers, I think, but it is very much a, a staple of, um, old-fashioned Britain before um, it was cheap, b- 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 before air travel became affordable for most people. That was what British people did on holiday. And of course, in May, I have All of This is True, which is Ligia de Penuflor's second book. And uh, it's getting a lot of buzz already on social media. It's about four teenagers who plot to meet their favorite author. And what happens next will shock you. Ooh. Well, that's tantalizing. I have to stop you, though, before we go through the rest of the year. Oh, yeah. Well, hey, that's only May. That's May. That's just May. That's it. I'm not even talking about October. A long time from now. Okay. Um, I'll tell you mine. I only have one. I have lots of books coming out, but I'm going to talk about one, which is called Cadaver and Queen by Elisa Quitney. Cadaver? Like dead person? Cadaver and Queen. That sounds like a fabulous law firm. (laughs) <laughs> um it comes out february 27th okay february 27th tell me about it and i described it when i was pitching it as uh sort of half jokingly as feminist frankenstein meets gray's anatomy and when do i get to read it because this sounds right <laughs> up my alley you can read it i will send you a gallery <gasps> if you want actually i'll send you a finished copy when they when oh. i get them Okay, I'll, 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 it's, um, I'll try to return something. I will try to return the favor with something from my shelf. It is. It takes some of the characters' themes, creepiness from Mary Shelley's original Frankenstein, and puts them into a medical school setting, complete with romance, banter, great ensemble, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, shambling dead people. That kind of. That thing. sounds awesome. Yeah, <laughs> I will. I love dead people. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> All right. Finally, as I ask all my guests, 
uh, I always ask, what are you obsessed with this week? Mm-hmm. And um, it does not have to be bookish, but it can be. And while you're thinking of it, I will tell you mine. So you might know that a year or so ago, I was totally obsessed with a book called My Lady Jane. Yes. Which basically takes the premise of... We were together and you made me I know. It. It's true. Yes. But uh, the premise was, what if the wars and strife of the 15th century England was not between Catholics and Protestants, but rather between shapeshifters and people who hate shapeshifters. Ooh. And, um, and it is a very different look, shall we say, at the nine-day reign of Lady Jane Grey. <laughs> because it involves, you know, talking horses and that kind of thing. It's hilarious. And it was a real slump buster. Like, I was in this place yes. where, oh, nothing's good. Everything's terrible. Books are awful. And I, more. I know that's <laughs> I know. I read it and it was just such a delight and it made me get back onto my reading kick and I loved it. Well, it so happens that the same authors now have a new book coming out. It comes out in June, I believe. Yeah. June 26th. Now from this Hooper. has three authors, right? Yes, it has three authors. So Cynthia Hand, Cynthia Hand, Jody Meadows, and Brody Ashton. And um, they write kind of like, I don't know how they do it, but it's very funny. Um, <laughs> they... Like they address the reader as like, we were surprised too, you know, <laughs> like, um, can you believe that? No, we can't. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the next book in the series, The Lady Janies, is My Plain Jane. And this one is about Jane Eyre. Oh, no, really? And I can only say Jane Eyre meets Ghostbusters. <laughs> it's Effing hilarious. It's such a delight. <laughs> that sounds like one of my made up pitches when I'm trying to describe, you know, people. Well, it needs a log line. It needs like X, 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 X. <laughs> it, it's Mary Poppins meets the road. <laughs> <laughs> this is la- literally Jane Eyre meets Ghostbusters. Okay. And it I is very, very, very delightful. I am in because I thought my lady Jane was very funny. Um, and, uh, I remember we had a really interesting discussion about the cover in the, U- the oh, U S versus the UK. That was a well, whole other UK topic we could, have, um, we could have covered maybe next time we I know. can do a, a <laughs> chat about U S and UK covers. Uh, well, that yeah. sounds right up my alley. And I will, I don't really know how we could do that without insulting people. Are we not allowed to insult people? <laughs> oh, well, we might be, but they might listen and then it could get awkward. So. <laughs> All right. All right. So what are you obsessed with, Molly? Hall? I have two things that I'm obsessed with. If I'm brief, can I tell you about both of them? Yeah. Okay. So the first is, uh, and I say this, I am a British citizen now, so I can say this and not worry about getting kicked out of the country because I have already passed my citizenship exam and taken my oath. I am not a royalist. I am, I am, my, my feelings for the monarchy cannot be described as ambivalent. <laughs> However, I am reading, I just finished last night, the most extraordinary book called Ma'am Darling, 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret. And it's by Craig Brown, who writes for Private Eye, which is a satirical political commentary magazine over here. It's an institution. And it is a combination of reportage about Princess Margaret, who, if you have been watching The Crown, you will know was a colorful (laughs) figure. So it's a combination of reportage and imagining things about her. So in 99 chapters, some of which are people telling the author um, about the time they met Princess Margaret, and some of it is straight up biography. Then it'll be interspersed with 
what would have happened if she'd actually married Captain Peter Townsend? And that would take the form of her obituary if she had been Mrs. Peter Townsend. Mm. It's, it's bonkers. And it's sometimes it's a little heavy going, not because it's dull, but because think she did not have an easy time. Uh, you know, mostly it was her own doing, but uh, it, it's, it's an extraordinary book and I've never read anything quite like it. And if you like fiction and nonfiction, as I do, it is the perfect hybrid. But the other thing I'm reading, and I saved it for the Christmas holidays because I needed something to look forward to as I slouch toward the end of the year, um, is the newest book in Libba Bray's Diviners series, Before the Devil Breaks You. And I had read the first one when it came out and it scared the womp out of me, as my husband's grandmother used to say. And, and then I thought the second one was even better. Um, and because like me, Libba absolutely loves New York City history. And I think her research is incredible. But the thing about this book that I'm seeing over and over is how relevant it is, how relevant the character's 1920s story is to a modern audience. Um, the difficulty of being a woman, a young woman in the public eye. Uh, what happens when your hero behaves in a way that makes you dislike them. How does that affect the way you feel about their work? I think that's extremely topical right now. And I'm looking mm, at I'd you, Hollywood. So. Uh, <laughs> there, there are so many, because it's got such a sprawling cast of characters, she has so many opportunities to, to draw parallels between their situations and our modern society. And she does it so smoothly and effortlessly while still maintaining this incredible tension and this really macabre, spooky story. I just, oh, I think she's so gifted. I'm, I love Libba's work. So that's the other thing I'm obsessed with. And I've been treating myself every night to a hot bath and another couple of chapters of Before the Devil Breaks You. Thanks again to my great guest, Molly Carahan. She can be found on Twitter at MollyKH. And I'll be putting links to her website, submission information, and the books we talked about today in the show notes which are available on my website, jenniferlofrin.com slash literaticast, or just follow all the links on Twitter and everywhere else. As always, I can be found on Twitter at literaticat. Also, the Literaticast has a Patreon. Throw in a buck and you just might win cool books, plus get a chance to hear about guests, get a first crack at asking questions, and more. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.